During the Cold War, there were hard weapons, intercontinental ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads and tanks lined up on both sides of the Iron Curtain. And there were soft weapons. The CIA, we now know, used American modern art as a weapon in the Cold War, fostering and promoting, unlikely as it seems, abstract American abstract expressionist painting around the world, and for as long as 20 years. This new artistic movement, they believed, could be held up as proof of the creativity and, above all, the intellectual freedom of the United States and an example of cultural power. As for the Russians, they allowed the Bolshoi to dance its way into Western Europe and beyond. And there was, of course, chess, with both the United States and the Soviet Union using one of the world's oldest board games to demonstrate the superiorities of their own particular systems. It's clear that this is what caught Tim Rice's imagination in the early 1980s, a match between a Russian and an American grandmaster and their fight over a woman who manages one and falls in love with the other. Think Spassky, Fisher, Korchnoi and Karpov, and you'll have an idea who the competing kings are in this piece of musical theatre. That's Freddie Trumper and Anatoly Sergeyevsky. Joined by the two Bs from ABBA, Benny Anderson and Bjorn Ulveus, the three men produced a highly successful concept album which was released in the autumn of 1984. And once on the back of the success of the album they'd raised the money, the show itself opened in London's West End in 1986 where it played for three years. Well, to help us explore chess, uh, we're joined by, in a moment by Kimberly Blake, who's covering the role of Svetlana, and Richard Pearson, who's a member of the music staff here at English National Opera, and they're going to perform a number from chess for us and talk about, about the music. We're also joined by Nikki Wollaston, we hope, who's the associate director of the show. But as you're going to see, this is one of the most complex semi-stage shows I think I've ever seen. Uh, and it needs constant love and attention, all hands on stage. And it may be that Nikki doesn't quite make it to be with us, but fingers crossed everybody. But our first guest is here. It's Olaf Ubin, a musical theatre scholar who has his work currently on a new book on Tim Rice. Will you please welcome Olaf Ubin, reader in media studies and musical theatre at Regent's University here in London. One more. One more. You can sit on my knee if you like, but... Uh, <laughs> I think not, probably. Probably. I don't know you that well. Olive, <laughs> um, <laughs> is this a show you've always admired? Yes, I have. Actually, since the album came out in 1984, I've followed the journey of chess through its various incarnations up to the production that we, some of you will see this afternoon or this evening. So, yes, I've always been in love with chess, the music and the story. I gave a rather perhaps simplistic account of the genesis of this piece. Perhaps you could give us more detail about how it begins um, with the concept album. I mean, the, the puzzle about the two Bs from the most <laughs> successful pop band ever, uh, uh, I think, uh, was suddenly designed to work with Tim Rice. Um, Tim Rice had the idea for chess um, already in the late 1970s, early 1980s. It was actually announced in 1982 that Andrew Lloyd Webber would write the score for chess. Um, but then 
he wrote Cats, and the rest is sort of history. And uh, Tim Rice needed to find somebody else who was interested in that project. And he was introduced um, to Benny and Björn because uh, a mutual friend had heard that they wanted to write musical theater. And so he flew to Stockholm and introduced the idea, and they agreed that it would be a worthwhile project. And for once, there was a very clear, um, at least it seems to be a fairly clear division of labor. Now, Benny and Björn usually wrote songs together. Um, most of the time, Björn would write the lyrics. And uh, this time, Tim Rice would write the lyrics, and Benny and Björn would focus on the music, even though Tim Rice has recently admitted that sometimes there were sort of dummy lyrics by Björn, just to make clear sort of where the accents should fall in the lines. And he said some of these were so wonderful that he just decided to <laughs> keep them and take the credit. Um, and uh, so I think one is one night in Bangkok makes a hard man humble. That was one of the lines that is still from the very, very first draft there. It, it's a curious thought that two men um, who had been such constant professionals at writing, you know, four or five minutes mm -hmm. of concentrated pop music and dance music too, should suddenly want to engage in something much bigger and much more complex. Well, they had already started writing what they called a mini-musical for their tour in 1977. The um, European tour Abba did in 1977 had what was called uh, the Girl with the Golden Hair mini-musical, which consisted of four songs. And three of these later were recorded, and one of them, Thank You for the Music, has become very, very popular. And they wanted to expand on that, and so, um, if you have a look at the last released studio album of ABBA, which is The Visitors, most of the songs are self-contained little dramatic scenes. They're not quite as um, happy-go-lucky, they're not quite as cheerful as the earlier ABBA pop songs, and interestingly, sales for the visitors did not meet quite expectations. The audience wasn't willing to go with them to a more, um, a, a, a place where they were telling stories through music. And so in 1982, it was announced that ABBA would take a break. You might know that they never officially disbanded. Well, they're um, back together, there's a new album. There we go, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so they said, we want to explore something more uh, elaborate with chess and of course uh, some of you may know they have continued with that vein with one of the great interesting masterpieces of European music theatre, Christina from Duvemola, a nearly four hour Swedish musical um, that premiered in 1995. So they went further on that road and of course there's also been a small scale um, musical called um, Help Wanted, Help Circus that came out a couple of years ago. So they were already on that way and I think Tim Rice just allowed them to pursue that dream uh, in a more elaborate setup. Was the idea always that they would produce initially uh, an album, a concept album? I would think so. Tim Rice had had such big success with both the concept recordings of Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita, and so he assumed it would be the best way to introduce the material. Uh, of course, also, Tim Rice has always argued that he prefers the environment of a recording studio where you have Clear, uh, clear control over what happened to a theater production where things can go wrong. And of course, Benny and Bjorn were very, very efficient in recording songs. And so they all went to their Polar Studios in Stockholm and recorded it there, um, partly also because it allowed them to have a mixed Swedish-British cast, which I'm not sure would have been possible straight from the start if you had gone to a theater here in London. And how successful was the album? 
The album was very successful. It outsold Evita in several European countries. And of course, it brought forth two of the biggest hits of the 1980s, One Night in Bangkok, which is one of the few European uh, musical theater songs to make it into the top three of the United States. And I Know Him So Well, which topped the British charts for four weeks. So the album was very, very successful. And as you said earlier, um, without the enormous success of the album, which also got very good reviews, it would probably not have been as easy to get financing for the theater production. And that theater production, right from the start, was financed by an American company, the Schubert Organization. And there was the talk, should it first premiere in, on Broadway, or should it go to the West End? And partly because West End productions were a lot cheaper those days than um, ones in New York, they decided to go with London first. But also, Tim Rice wanted to make sure that Elaine Page would have a chance to recreate the role of Florence. And Elaine Page, um, unfortunately, had been denied twice the chance to recreate iconic roles in New York. She wasn't allowed to do Evita in 1979, and she wasn't allowed to do Grisabella in Cats in 1982. Uh, it would take another 12 years until she was allowed onto Broadway in Sunset Boulevard. But with that, way, with that production here in London, it was clear the original cast, Murray Hatt, um, Elaine Page, Tommy Kerberg, could recreate what they had done on, on, on recording. Um, I still think, at first glance, it's a curious subject for a piece of musical theatre. I mean, we think of musical theatre um, at its simplest, about leaving the theatre um, maybe six feet above the pavement. We've had a happy time. You know, we're all happy to yep. become Oklahomans. Um, you know, we've all been on a clam bake, etc. Um, but, but this is scarcely that kind of musical theatre at all. No, and of course you think the basic setup is too quiet men sitting. <laughs> That's what chess is, and they're moving tiny pieces, which of course you can't see on a big stage. So, um, uh, but then of course Tim Rice points out, it's about the stories behind uh, that tournament and uh, the private lives of those chess um, champions. And of course, as you've pointed out, the uh, opportunity it gave for uh, using chess as a metaphor for the Cold War and the shenanigans both the Russians and the Americans played during those times. Is it a conventional musical in its, in its architecture, in its form? No. Um, of course it depends. How do you define a conventional musical? It's not a classic book musical that you know from Rodgers and Hammerstein, Lerner and Lowe. It's not My Fair Lady. Tim Rice originally envisioned it like Jesus Christ Superstar and Tevita as sung through, meaning there was no dialogue in between the songs. The songs led, uh, one song led to another song, and there were big music ensembles, but otherwise it was supposed to be um, more like Jesus Christ Superstar, um, what later I think mistakenly was called a mega musical. But one other thing that is very unusual about chess particularly is that in the classic Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, the songs are there to further the story and to develop the character. And to get a character from point A in his or her uh, situation to point B, C, D, or even Z. But in chess, you have a number of very interesting songs that leave the characters exactly where they were and then they started, because those characters are all trapped. Um, you have the Russians where I want to be. You have Florence's... Um, or Svetlana's, depending on who sings it, someone else's story. Uh, you have Pity the Child, you have um, 
um, heaven help my heart, you have nobody side. All those characters are trapped and they try to get out of the situation but can't. And so in that respect it's a very unusual setup and you could also point out, coming back to you, say well after Oklahoma you want to sort of conquer the Wild West and be yeah. a do any or whatever, that chess in its original incarnation is probably the most bitter musical of the 1980s. Um, and uh, because it turns out that hardly any of the characters is willing or capable of leaving self-interest behind. And um, as Tim Rice points out in what might be the most typical Tim Rice song, nobody sighed. In the end, you can't rely on anyone because if you trust your lover, if you trust your, com uh, your country, if you trust uh, the secret service, they will exploit you. And so um, it's not necessarily a musical that you come out uh, thinking, wow, the world is wonderful, but you go out humming the songs, and that is one way of saying, the world is wonderful, everybody might be horrible, but at least the songs are nice. <laughs> what what you, you said a moment ago is really, I've never thought about this, but it's absolutely right. This is closer to John le Carre, yeah. and this world of complete mistrust and distrust yeah. all the way through. Yes. Um, the characters realize that as much as they try to navigate and to take control, in the end they can't. And uh, whether it's Svetlana, the Russian's wife, who tries to win him back, whether it's the Russian who tries to win freedom but realizes uh, even if he moves beyond borders, um, he will still always be a Russian, whether it's the American who sings a whole song about how he doesn't care about his mother, and you think, well, if you don't, why do you sing five minutes about her? Um, uh, whether it's Florence who says, I follow my heart, and then to realize that was a mistake, you shouldn't. Um, because in the end, it only gives you heartache. Um, there is a wonderful song near the end called You and I that sort of uh, allows the main characters to say, we would do it again. It ended not as we hoped. It's not a happy ending, but nonetheless, the moments we had while everything was wonderful were worth it. And uh, it's interesting that Tim Rice himself said, um, because he was confronted with it, somebody said, it seems that in your musicals, relationships all went and badly. And he says, um, yeah, well, um, not all, I, I don't really believe that. But of course, think of something uh, like um, what you have in Evita, uh, Good Night and Thank You, mm. where they sing nobody, um, there's nobody, nobody at all. Um, there isn't a lover who isn't out to betray you, who isn't out to f fleece you. So, and then it turns to the audience and says, you're the same. Um, maybe, you know, nowadays, Tim Rice being married, happily again, uh, having, I don't know how many children, um, he probably would say, ah, oh, well, I was younger then. Um, but it was very, very stark in the 1980s. Um, you might also think it could have something to do with the fact that Tim Rice, as he now wittily says, well, he split up with Andrew Lloyd Webber after Evita because they decided they couldn't top that. It was such a big hit all around the world. And then Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote Cats. And then he wrote Starlight Express, and then he wrote Phantom. And uh, Tim Rice wrote Blondel. And that was, as he said, the first major flop he ever had. And it hurt him very badly. And so he probably thought, hmm, clearly I lost it. Um, everything's bad, so let's write a musical about that. <laughs> the, the, the penultimate technical question is this. Um, this is a show that doesn't exist in a single form. No. It's not like a number of pieces of musical theatre where you go in, if you've seen it before, yep. you know what will happen next. Is that one of the excitements, that there's this variety of material that any production can begin to assemble its chest from? 
Um, I think it's, you need to ask the rights holder whether they allow you to do that, especially if you're a smaller company. But it is true that chess started as a concept recording. It was then, um, the concept recording already says there's more material that has been written um, and that will be so, uh, seen on stage. So when it opened in 1986 here in London, there was um, a rather difficult situation. The Schubert organization who financed it agreed to put on the show in London, but they sort of insisted that the director should be Michael Bennett, who after all had done a chorus line, Dreamgirls, and was one of the great uh, creators of musicals in America. But uh, it turned out that Michael Bennett was difficult to reach, and Tim Rice tried to send him material, tried to speak him in New York, and then just before rehearsals were about to begin, um, it was announced, or Michael Bennett let it known, that he was very ill, he was dying of AIDS. He hadn't told anyone, but by that time the cast had been contracted, the set has been built, and they needed a director. Trevor Nunn stepped in at the very last minute um, with a staging concept that wasn't his, and uh, he sort of helped put, whip the show into shape. It ran for three years. Um, partly because the score was so wonderful and the reviews were quite good. But it was always clear when the show would move to New York in 1988 that it would be rewritten. And this is where it becomes more complicated because Trevor Nunn brought in a book writer. He brought in Richard Nelson, an American playwright, uh, who decided to make it even more Jean Le Carré by adding dialogue. Now, Tim Rice didn't want that, and there were huge fights behind the scenes about how exactly the show should look. Um, if you have a look at uh, the, con the, the cast recording um, that was done in 1988 in, uh, on Broadway, there is a line in there that I have never found in any other recording of any musical ever, and that is that certain lyrics were changed without the permission of Tim Rice. Mm -hmm. um, Tim Rice's father died during previews. He flew back to America. Uh, he was very disappointed and um, in the end, he didn't care anymore. They changed it, but in New York, well, chess had a very, had very bad timing. Chess came over to New York at the end of a long series of American, uh, of British musicals that all arrived in New York with a lot of hype uh, that a lot of American critics didn't like. Um, they sort of accepted Cats, they loved Les Mis, they didn't like Phantom, they loved the staging, but otherwise they didn't like it very much. They hated Starlight Express, and when Chess came along as the last of them, the critics really took it out on Chess. Tim Rice later said, well, clearly the critics didn't like uh, British musicals, they don't like pop music, most of them actually miscategorized the score as rock, which it isn't, um, and the reviews were awful, and the musical in New York, um, played for six weeks, and then um, left the boards. Um, there were several reasons for that. Audience attendance wasn't that bad, but it was moving towards the summer months. Mm. Reviews had been bad, and there was fear that there would not be enough of an audience to sustain the show during the hot months, when a lot of New Yorkers don't go to the theater. Uh, there was also um, the story that Jerome Robbins, who was about to have a review of his stagings, Jerome Robbins Broadway, in New York, wanted the Imperial Theatre where Chess was playing, and so the Schuberts <laughs> in the end agreed, let's close it um, before um, we lose any more money. Um, there was a cast recording, and since then there have been, I don't know how many versions of Chess. Uh, it was rewritten constantly, there was an Australian production which is different, there was uh, several German productions that 
changed the decades, that changed the settings. In 2002, there was the first Swedish language production, which once again changes the setting. Um, it reduces, it sort of restricts the action to Murano, which unfortunately means that one of the most popular songs, One Night in Bangkok, had to go. Um, <laughs> Um, they also wrote several new songs with lyrics by Björn Oveos, um, which actually is it's a very, very interesting and very intelligent production. It's available on DVD, unfortunately only in Swedish, um, but you can find the translations of the songs on the internet. And uh, in 2009, uh, Tim Rice himself produced a concert staging at the Royal Albert Hall. And by that time, he had said several times, even we who have written it, no longer know which is the one version. There are so many. Um, and he says, well, maybe we should go back to the original and start from there, because that was the artistic impetus. That's what we wanted to do. And everything that came afterwards was sometimes suggested by other directors, other producers, sometimes performers. And it may have been helpful at the moment, but if you want to come up with the, um, with the one chess, um, it's difficult, so um, I'm looking very much forward to see what kind of version um, is now playing here at the ENO. Uh, some of you might have heard that there was an American production uh, two months ago in February in Washington, which once again had a new book coming out of nowhere. Um, and uh, clearly, um, the rewriting or trying to sort of salvage chess will go on, partly because there are so many people who love the score that they will always try to come up with a version that pleases everyone, which is possibly not possible. Oh, no. you mean, thank you very much thank you. indeed. Thank you. A wonderful context in which we can try and make our own sense of what we're going to see. Um, our next guest is Richard Pearson, who's at the piano, who is a member of the music staff here at English National Opera and who's been working on chess with the singers. Richard, did you know this piece before you began working on it? Um, I knew I know him so well and one night in Bangkok because I had a lot, lot of people, but, and I, I think I'd heard Anthem, but apart from that, apart from the obvious hits, I didn't know it at all. So been wonderful to get to know this piece. And, and, and as you opened the score, knowing this was going to be your life for a considerable period of time, what were your reactions to I was, um, first, um, a little intimidated um, by some of the bits which are basically heavy rock. And having worked in opera for 25 years, it doesn't quite come to my fingers naturally. But um, I, as I got to know it, I was absolutely delighted, particularly by that aspect, the sheer variety of musical styles in this piece. Mm. I think it's got more uh, varieties of style of music than anything I have ever worked on, and yeah. that's what I absolutely love about it. Give us some idea of the kind of styles that you, that you find in the score. Well, I could give you a couple of examples. I mean, the, the overture just starts with a, a wonderfully um, atmospheric, very mysterious full of orchestral passage. There's a, um, a feeling of what on earth is going to happen. And then as the overture gradually broadens out, there are um, lyrical moments, perhaps hinting at the romance in the piece, sort of romance in the piece, but it builds to sort of epic proportions, which to my mind suggests an epic battle, both on the chessboard, mm. but between two nations, two ideologies. Mm. So just to give you an example. Mm. 
massive suddenly. And then, but then, thank you. Um, but then that's immediately followed by the first sung number, which is the story of chess and a character who we uh, hear later as the arbiter, the referee of, of the chess match, um, tells us the story of the origin, origins of chess. And it's suddenly different music completely again. It's almost balletic. It's almost sort of Tchaikovsky balletic. Ooh. With the text, each game of chess means there's one less variation left to be played. So we have another completely different musical style. And then you mentioned the, the Murano, the chorus of Murano. Suddenly we're plunged into the world of almost pastiche Gilbert and Sullivan or something. It's, and um, the choreography for that is just glorious. So it goes from one musical style to another. Um, halfway through the Murano chorus, Frederick Trumper, the rather brash, vulgar American chess playing champion, well, world champion, arrives. And um, the music goes from this um, almost GNS. Suddenly into well, heavy rock, basically, as he, as he comes off the plane. Um, I can find it. Suddenly this sort of thing. And it, it suddenly goes from one style to another. And it's always appropriate for the drama. It's absolutely wonderful. It doesn't, it doesn't jar. You just get plunged into another, another world. Um, and uh, so one of the challenges for me was embracing all of these styles and actually I was given a rather nice compliment by a wonderful man called Anders Eljas, who did the orchestrations um, for chess. And um, he also played keyboards on some of the ABBA world tours. Um, and uh, he was, he'd been here for quite a few rehearsals and he was in the, one of the studio rehearsals when we did a run of act one, I think. And he said, I've got to buy you a pint afterwards. That was wonderful. <laughs> and he said, you know, some people can manage the heavy rock and other pianists can manage the classical but make a mess of the other, but you can do both, which was a very nice compliment. <laughs> Incidentally, he also told me that when, you know, we were looking at the full score together, and I was saying, well, it's wonderful orchestration, it's flute writing, and he said, well, actually, that's completely stolen from Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe. <laughs> he, was, he was very honest about it. Um, but uh, you were mentioning, I think, well, the chess match, it, match itself earlier on, um, and... I wondered how dramatic a chess match itself could be. And I believe in some productions it's been quite a stylized thing with dancers being chess characters. But here we have a literal game of chess. And um, I'll play a bit of the music. Um, if I can find the page. Um, yes, and incidentally, they are playing a real game of chess that was played, I think, by... Is it Kasparov? And mm -hmm. I can't remember, but one of the great historic chess matches, they are recreating that match, and they had to learn the moves with precise, precisely timed to beats of the bar. They were, Tim Howe and uh, Michael Ball were tearing their hair out, trying to... <laughs> um, but, um, and, but as I played these rehearsals and I watched them, I thought, gosh, this is the most extraordinary dramatic tension I have ever seen to this beautiful music, and I could not believe it. And I thought, Lawrence, the... You know, the director who made the decision to do a real chess match, it was a stroke of genius, I, I, as you'll see, I hope. But I'll just give you a taste of some of that music.
And the moves happen about this rate. One move. Next move. There may be a pause while he thinks. And finally, the next move. And it's, the tension is extraordinary. And then about halfway through the chess match, the music becomes suddenly very dramatic. And the moves suddenly speed up when we get this music. And, well, you'll see the images on the screen. I think it's the most extraordinary dramatic conceit, both on the part of the composers and Tim Rice, but also particularly the director. Um, yeah, so I've had a great experience working on this. <laughs> Richard, how, in a sense, are the, the lyrics here? What's the balance between, between, as it were, the lyrics and the music? I mean, how carefully does that relationship work out? I think very carefully. Um, uh, there are times when it is tricky because there are lots of different lines of lyrics happening at the same time. Um, but in the big solos particularly, and, and, and the wonderful ballads, it's just perfect, just beautiful. There are some ensembles, it must be said, where it's quite tricky to keep track of some of the lyrics. Um, but there's plenty to look at while that's happening, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Richard Pearson, thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, our final guest this afternoon Hi, is Kimberly Blake, who's covering the role of Svetlana. Um, a, a warm welcome, Kimberly. Thank you for coming. You're also appearing in the show, aren't you? I am, yes. Tell I'm us what you're, what you're appearing as uh, in the show as well as... So, I'm in the ensemble. Um, I play the mayor's wife at the beginning of the show, which you'll see me in a minute. I've got my very attractive uh, <laughs> pin curl head, so I don't know if anybody knows, but before we start the show, we have to pin curl and put these like affectionate tights on our head. Um, and then the wigs go on top of this, and they can be changed quite quickly throughout the show. So, I first appear in Murano, if you're all watching the show, as the mayor's wife. So, you'll see me in a, in a brown wig. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, you, did you know Chess before you were invited to join the company? So I think like many people, I thought about this question. Um, I think I didn't know the chess as a whole because I'm an 80s baby, so I probably wasn't born when it, when it actually was created. Um, but I knew a lot of the songs. Um, I didn't know the plot really that, that well. Um, so when I initially got the audition and started to, to look into the material a bit more, I thought, I know this song and I've heard this one before and I've heard this one before. And the thing about chess is that the music is so varied and it's so different. I'm sure Richard's talked about that. Um, and you've got the most beautiful choral music which mixed with some really rocky and amazing contemporary stuff and it's just such a great show. What have you come to feel about it as you've, as you've worked on it? So my mum's coming to see the show in a couple of weeks and I think, I don't know if she's going to understand the plot very well. It's taken me a while to understand the plot. I think if you know a lot about politics and everything then it's a, the show for you. Um, but I think even when you're watching chess even if you sit and close your eyes, you can still enjoy the show. Because for me, it's totally about the music and it's about the wonderful orchestra we have here and the ENO chorus and the sound that is produced on that stage is, is breathtaking. Even when you're on the stage itself and you're, you're singing, you're part of it, you, you're pinch I'm pinching myself. Like, this is the Coliseum and it's, it's a stunning, stunning place. So for me, chess is definitely about the music as a whole. It's a spectacle. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be part of. Tell us a bit about Svetlana. Who is she? So Svetlana is Anatoly's uh, wife and I think as a character we kind of don't really see her appear. We see her in the, in the beginning of the show but we see her more towards the second half of the show and I think she represents a place that a lot of women have been in um, because 
he's off working and he's off living his life and she's there and she wants to um, look after his child and his family and ensure that his child isn't affected by anything that happens in his life. And I see her as quite a strong, a strong woman because on the surface she doesn't appear that emotional but I think she's got quite an inner heartbreak going on. So as a character it's quite, it's quite difficult to play those kinds of characters that aren't overly emotional to begin with because you don't have anything necessarily to play on straight away. Um, so it's all an inner monologue for her I think and she has to appear, appear as this really strong character that isn't affected by anything but I think she, she knew who she married and what she was getting into when she married him. So She does in a sense win because after all Anatoly does go back mm to the Soviet Union. So that, that kind of turmoil inside does in the end produce the best result for her. Exactly, but then I think, I think she knew what was happening with, with Florence and what goes on in the plot, and I think that must be a really hard thing for her to deal with, but I mm. think something that maybe a lot of women have dealt with themselves in, in marriage or in life. Um, I'm not married, so I don't really know. <laughs> I can't identify with that part of her, but I have had relationships that have been similar, you know, with my partner's away working all the time, and I'm there trying to keep... I'm a nanny, so I look after kids, so I understand that feeling. <laughs> well, what are the demands of the part, both as an actress, but also someone who's a singing actress? So, I think for me, being an understudy, or being, like, there's no perfect way to understudy a role, um, but ultimately, your job is to be there when the person who's um, playing the principal part cannot perform their role. Um, and I personally, I've, I've played a principal part and also had an understudy, so I know how it feels from both sides. So my job, I think, is to quietly watch in the wings and always be aware of any changes being made by, by the director or anything. And quietly, I mean, a lot of people might have seen in the newspapers that on our opening night, we had um, quite an amazing thing happen. Kellen went on for um, Tim, whose wife went into labour. So understudies are a crucial part of, of theatre and of West End theatre and shows in general because without them, I mean, that sh without Kellen, that we don't know what we would have done for the second half. Um, so you, it's amazing what you do know, even though you think you might not have had the most rehearsals or we might not have blocked the show properly. You retain a lot of information just from watching the show visually, so, yeah. That sounds like muscle memory to me, is, it? is that what it is? It is, yeah. And I'm not the strongest of dancers, but musically, I mean, my, my memory's quite good. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's also nice to be in the ensemble, because I think if I was just an understudy waiting in the wings, I'd, mm. get, a bit, I'd get a bit fed up. So it's mm. lovely to be part of the show, and then to be, when you're needed necessarily to step in, that's really nice. And you're going to sing for us. What are you, you and Richard going to perform for us? Someone else's story. Ah. Which is Svetlana's song. <laughs> In a way, 
It's someone else's story I don't see myself as taking part at all Yesterday, a girl that I was fond of Came to know the truth, the writing on the wall Sadly, her words described an empty affair And sadder than that, she knew he wouldn't even care Her life no longer his concern What to do and where to turn It's all very well to say she's free It's now or never She feels she's facing No choices whatsoever I could be in someone else's story in someone else's life and he could be in mine i don't see a reason to be lonely i could take my chances further down the line and if that girl i knew should ask my advice why wouldn't hesitate she needn't ask me twice go now i tell her that for free trouble is the girl is me the story is the girl is me Emily, we might remember that you've got two whole shows today. Two shows today. I don't know how <laughs> any of you managed to do Two it. shows in the ensemble. Um, but, yeah, two show days are really interesting when you're a performer because, like, just you might have heard just then everybody warms up. We have a physical warm-up. You kind of start your day really early in the morning. You have to wake up early to kind of warm your voice up and get going. And you have to develop a certain amount of stamina. The dancers in this show work so incredibly hard. They are non-stop and they really, really do, like, they're incredible. And I think with this show in particular, a lot of the creatives have said, because it's such a short run, we've got performers in this show that we wouldn't necessarily have because they'd be tied up elsewhere. So the talent on the stage really, it really is incredible. It's amazing. A very last question shortly. Do, do you think, in a way, that Chess's time has suddenly come now? Do you think we've arrived at a point, Cold War over, uh, we think, um, another war, um, maybe? Uh, but do you think this is the moment when the show somehow finally has reached uh, its audience at the right moment? 
the question with chess is always how do you perform it? Because when it was written in 1984, of course, it was about the there and then. And, uh, you know, in 1984, when the show came out, remember that uh, 1983, Ronald Reagan just gave his very infamous speech about the empire of evil, um, criticizing the Soviet Union. 1984, the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc states boycotted the uh, Olympic Games in Los Angeles. So at that time, and being German, I can tell you, nobody believed where I lived that the Berlin Wall would come down, that we would ever have uh, so not an Iron Curtain. So nowadays you can see it as an historic musical, hopefully um, that helps people remember what it was like and that, please, we don't need to go this route again. Um, and um, unfortunately it's not in our hands. But uh, uh, I think the show was never sort of out of touch. Um, with that marvelous score, there is always something to, to enjoy, even if you think the historic parallels might not necessarily be quite as blatant and obvious and hard-hitting as they once were. But uh, it's a fascinating story which gives brilliant opportunities for an enormously talented cast. So, um, well, I think chess times is always, it's always time for chess, but uh, um, sorry. I'm that, a fan. that sounds like a rather catchy line. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we've reached the end of our allotted time, um, checkmate, so to speak. Um, thank you all very much for being wonderfully attentive, thoughtful audience. You could have heard a pin drop. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, and uh, on your behalf, may I say thank you to our three guests um, Richard Kimberley and Olaf.